Psalm chapter 8, open your Bibles there. This is a safe place for those of you that are brand new to the Bible. If you don't have a copy or you don't have an ESV, which is the version that we use, grab your mobile device, punch in Psalm 8 ESV. You are also welcome at any time to walk to the lobby and grab a physical copy of the Bible if you would prefer, but you will want to have the passage in front of you. Earlier this year, I came across an article with the following headline. Earth now has eight billion humans. This man wishes there were none. The article profiles a man named Les Knight who founded the Voluntary Human Extinction Movement. And this movement promotes the belief that the best thing that humans can do for the earth is to stop having children. If Mr. Knight were here, he would uh, likely not be a fan of our children's ministry. He'd be, why are you having all these children? And here's, here's what he thinks. Their tagline of the voluntary human extinction movement is this, may we live long and die out. That's what they exist for. Mr. Knight and those who side with him acknowledge that humans have achieved much. That They're very willing to say that humans have achieved much, but they are, quote, a net detriment to the earth. Humans are a net detriment to the earth. Here's what he says right in the article. Look what we did to this planet. Look what we did to this planet. We are not a good species. The, the Voluntary Human Extinction Movement believes that the planet, the planet matters more than its people. The planet matters more than its people. We are a net detriment to the earth. The planet would be better off without us. And therefore, we should let ourselves go extinct. Now, this is obviously an extreme example of a common sentiment. Humanity is sometimes difficult to appreciate. <laughs> but if Mr. Knight were to have a sit-down interview with God, the one who made mankind, and share his thoughts about humanity with God, how do you think God would respond? How do you think God would respond to the voluntary human extinction movement, well, there's no need to wonder. God provides his perspective in Psalm chapter 8. So why don't you follow along with me in your Bibles as I read it now. Psalm chapter 8, all nine verses I'll read then pray. Verse 1. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth, you have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babies and infants, you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him? And the son of man that you 
care for him. Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the seas. Oh Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. The very words of God. Please join me in a brief prayer for understanding. Lord, we want to be captivated by your glory. We want to understand ourselves and our purpose here. And in this psalm, you both draw our attention to your glory and help us make sense of ourselves. And so, Lord, I ask you now that the effect of us studying and considering the truth recorded in this ancient song would both help us to understand ourselves and draw us into worship of the God who made us and saved us. This we ask in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. When when learning to read and understand and interpret the Bible, one of the most foundational skills you develop is to look for repetition. Repetition. Repetition often signifies the main point of a passage. And as somebody tasked with interpreting a passage of Scripture, I was very happy when I read Psalm chapter 8 because the repetition is quite clear. The first and last verses are identical. And they are the main point of the psalm. O Lord, our Lord. Two different words there, right? The one in all caps is God's covenant name, Yahweh. The other Lord is a more generic term for a master or ruler. So, O Yahweh, the God who has a personal covenantal relationship with us, you are our master and leader and ruler. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. That's the point of the passage, okay? Put sermon over. Let's go. Should we go home? No, not yet. How majestic is your name in all the earth? We, we as God's people are to behold, observe, enjoy, and proclaim the majesty of God which is on display anywhere we look. That's your purpose in life. Every created thing speaks of the greatness of the creator, whether or not it has a voice. The transcendent, powerful, otherworldliness of God is on display through everyone and everything. And just like the psalmist, we should walk around in absolute awe. We should be saying, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth as we make our way around this planet. God is not an impersonal creator. Not at all. He's not the great clockmaker who made the universe and started it turning and then, and then took his hands off, like some believe. No, this creator is our Lord, 
our master, our leader, our king, and as his people. It is our joy, as much as it is our job, to declare his majesty. That's the message of this psalm. The other seven verses explain why God's name is majestic in all the earth. And the other seven verses are so surprising because the other seven verses are about mankind. (laughs) They are not really about God when you first read them, are they? They are about mankind. So according to Psalm 8, why should you and I devote ourselves to declaring the greatness and the majesty of God? And the reason the psalmist gives here, you should dedicate your very existence to declaring the greatness of God because your life matters to God. Your life matters to God. Our lives collectively matter to God. The life of the person who bothers or upsets you or frustrates you the most matters to God. And that is why, mark my words, the voluntary human extinction movement will one day be extinct. It will not last because mankind matters too much to God to let us go extinct, whether we do it on purpose or on accident. God will not let us go extinct. We matter too much to him. Does it surprise you? I mean, personalize this. Does it surprise you to know that your life matters to God? That should surprise you. It surprises me based on what I know about myself. It certainly surprises the psalmist. He is surprised that our lives matter to God. Let me give you three reasons why. Three reasons why he's surprised that his life and your life and our lives matter to God. This is our outline. I'll give you these three points as we go. Why should we be surprised that our lives matter to God? Point number one, because we're small. We're small. The first humans mentioned in this passage are the smallest kinds of humans. In verse 2, we meet babies and infants. And what are they doing? These babies and infants are preaching about the strength of God. They are revealing the strength of God against his greatest enemies. Though newborns can't speak, right, their existence speaks of the power and wisdom of God who knit them together cell by cell in the womb, who ensures that that they know how to nurse from day one even though nobody teaches them. If God's enemies would just stop for a moment and ponder the wonder of new life, They would be humbled and they would put their weapons down for why would you go against a God who is able to sustain and create newborn human life? It would be foolish to resist a God who can create and sustain like that. There is enough, this is verse two in a nutshell, there is enough of God's strength revealed in the weakest humans to stop an army. That's what verse two is poetically portraying. 
Even the smallest, most helpless, most vulnerable people, little children, matter to God because they reveal his majesty. But the psalmist's meditation on our smallness doesn't end there. Doesn't end there. Verse 3. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place. This famous verse is why some have referred to this psalm as the song of the astronomer. Even though, if you notice, per capita, it doesn't talk much about galaxies and constellations and those kinds of things, but this has caught our attention. When the psalmist looks at the greatest and grandest heavenly bodies, he looks up into the night sky, he sees the great expanse and the stars twinkling. He realizes that creation is just more massive than he can comprehend. And science actually serves us very well on this front in the 21st century. We, we know even more about the universe outside of our little planet than the psalmist did. And its scale is really impossible to comprehend. I mean, our galaxy alone is estimated, and this is a big variance here, estimated to have between 100 and 400 billion stars. I can't even imagine that. Like our sun, 100 to 400 billion of them, and our, stars, our sun is really a small one. And at least that many planets, more planets and solar systems than that. And that's only one galaxy, right? And astronomers estimate that the number of galaxies ranges from, I mean, the ranges are all over the place, 100, 200 billion, 2 trillion. They're just guessing at the number of galaxies. So a countless number of stars the scope of the size of the observable universe is really incomprehensible to the human mind it is absolutely massive and god himself put it all there and makes sure moment by moment that every galaxy black hole star planet asteroid is all doing what it's doing one theologian famously said, there are no rogue molecules in the universe. But this psalm isn't really about the cosmos. This psalm isn't designed to get us to fixate on the natural world so that after this, you really just want to go up to a mountain and look at a tree. That's not what this psalm is designed to get you to do. Verse 3 is a passing thought on the way to the next verse, verse 4. So, in light of all this, this massive, glorious universe, what is, verse 4, what is man? How small. What is man that you are mindful of him? And the son of man, that you care for him? With a universe as massive as that to command and control, why does God care so much about mankind? I mean, we're so small in comparison to all that he's made. I mean, again, it's just impossible to illustrate. We're just, we're tiny even just compared to this planet. I mean, every time I watch Planet Earth, which I love to do, much to my children's chagrin, I love to watch Planet Earth or any other nature show narrated by David Attenborough. Those of you David Attenborough fans know what I'm talking about. I am shocked by how much there is to learn and observe just on our planet. 
and the gap between what we actually know and what is here just on planet Earth, it's mind-boggling. And Earth is just one of trillions upon trillions of planets in the cosmos. Yet, in spite of all these other things under God's care in creation, we, we occupy a unique spot. In his mind. We have a special attention. I mean, verse 4 describes both God's attitude towards us and his actions towards us. His attitude and his actions. The first word, mindful, that he is mindful of us. He takes thought for us. He's paying attention to us. That's his attitude. He cares about us. And then he cares for us. That's the second thing. He cares for us. He actively and personally sees to our needs. Oxygen, food, water, shelter. If you're alive today, which if you're hearing me, you are, it's because the cause underneath all the causes is that God is actively working to keep you living, seeing to every detail of your existence. So what we learn about God is that he is majestic. He's majestic and worthy to be praised, not because he creates things that are big, but because he cares for things that are small. That's why the psalmist is saying, how majestic is your name in all the earth, because God doesn't merely make things that are big. He cares for things that are small. But think, think of, a, think of a, a busy king in his throne room with, with military generals and advisors buzzing around, fighting for his attention, a ton of huge decisions on his shoulders. Yet a young servant boy walks in and the king stops everything to go and talk and give his attention and care to that young servant boy. Everybody would notice. That king is great. <laughs> He's great because he cares about little things. And we are little things. <laughs> we are little things that he cares about. So whenever you, whenever you or I have a chance to enjoy the created world, whether that's a sunset at the beach or half dome at Yosemite or the redwood forest or the stars at night when we're up in the mountains in October, away from all the light pollution, looking up at the sky, Oh, use it, use it as an opportunity, not just to enjoy the created world, but to embrace your own smallness and to remember that you are not very big. When you stand at the base of a huge mountain and marvel at how large it is, don't let your thought end there. Don't just stop by saying, wow, that mountain is huge. Don't stop there. Continue to the next step. Think about yourself in relationship to it. That mountain is huge. I am so small. But, but don't stop there either. Don't stop there either. Never, if you can avoid it, never end a pattern of thought thinking about yourself. Just try that this afternoon. Good luck. But, but never end a pattern of thought thinking about yourself if you can help it. Our last thought should always be about God. That mountain is so big. I am so small. But God, when he looks at the mountain and me, he cares more about me. How majestic is his name 
in all the earth. God is glorious and worthy of praise because small people are of huge importance to him. Point number two. Why should we be surprised that our lives matter to God? Point number two, because we're, we're creatures. We are creatures. Feels nice to be called a creature, doesn't it? Like we're some slimy creature from a swampy lagoon. <laughs> You're a creature. But we are, okay? Created beings. That's precisely what verse 5 says. Look at the next verse in our passage. Verse 5, yet... You, God, have made man a little lower than the heavenly beings. You've made him a little lower than the heavenly beings. We are not immaterial, spiritual, angelic beings. We're earthy things, right? We're earthy. We're made of dirt, as, as Genesis 1 makes clear. We're lower in the sense that we are physical beings, subject to the laws of the natural world that God established. But, again, that doesn't mean that mankind is unimportant. Next line. You made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him. Royalty crowned him with glory and honor. Our psalmist takes a quick trip back to the Garden of Eden. That's what he's doing, the beginning of the Bible. This is mankind before he was spoiled by rebellion against his maker. This is mankind's unchanging status given to him by God. This is a dignity that only mankind possesses among all created things. Only humans were made in the image of God. Only humans have the capacity to consciously worship God. Only humans can say, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth and actually mean it, right? I mean, you could teach a parrot to say it, but the parrot wouldn't mean it, right? We could say it and we can mean it. Only man can consciously worship gods. Animals, plants, clouds, moons, stars can't do that. Mankind is the only creature that can relate to God on a personal level. And on top of that, mankind is the only creature given the right to rule. Verse 6, you, God, have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You've put all things under his feet. Contrary to popular belief, lions are not the king of the jungle. Lions are not the king of the jungle. I'm sorry. I know this is a big revelation for those of you who love lions. Lions are not the king of the jungle. Mankind is king of the jungle, all right? Mankind is the only one given dominion over the things that God has made. We are the rulers of God's world. He set man in the garden back at the beginning to represent him and to rule on his behalf over creation. And this is a dignity that we have. This is a dignity that only we have. We can know God. We can serve God with both our minds and our bodies. We can imitate God. We were created in his image and commissioned by him in a way that nothing else was. There's a unique glory that mankind possesses. 
apart from the rest of creation. And that is why we matter to him. That's why you matter to him. If, if you think that you can somehow make yourself feel like you matter to God by your own behavior or, or your own accomplishments, you can't. If you want to know that you matter, you matter to God, you must know what his intention was in creating you. That's where you get a stable sense of identity. You matter to him not because of anything that you do, but because of what you are by virtue of what he's created you to be. He made us. He placed us in an exalted position. And we need to remember the dignity that humanity has. Don't look down on mankind. Oh, it's so easy to do. And there's so many reasons too. Don't look down on mankind. Don't look down on yourself even. From our first breath, God crowned us with glory and honor. Oh, let that humble you. Can you believe that you and I and everybody else occupies such a privileged position? It's humbling. Let it also change the way that you view others. These people that you and I meet and talk to every day, that sit next to us in restaurants, that are pumping gas next to us at the gas station, that work in the cubicle next to us. Those people are the crown of God's creation. Instead of complaining about them, oh, I need help with this, Lord help me. Instead of complaining about them, as is our natural tendency, let's treat them with the dignity and the wonder that God intends. And then, next step, as you look at mankind and marvel at what God has made them to be, let that lead you to worship the God who created and commissioned us. When we look at mankind, let's do something really strange. <laughs> let's take it as a cue to say, Oh Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. When you walk downtown after the service and see the people bustling around, Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. God has put people around us to lead us to do just that. We are creatures. Point number three. Why should it surprise us that we matter to God? Point number three, because we are rebels. Because we're rebels. Now, if you love rock and roll, you might think it's a good thing to be a rebel. And if you love rock and roll, it probably is a good thing to be a rebel. Rock and roll, you know, whatever, metalheads, rock and roll people are rebels. But here, it's not a good thing, okay? This is not a good thing to be a rebel. Psalm 8 was written after the events of Genesis chapter 3. And in Genesis chapter 3, Adam and Eve believe the serpents lie about God and they act in defiance of God's instructions and they rebel against him. And so instead of being crowned with glory and honor in Genesis chapter 3, they're clothed with shame. Instead of ruling creation, creation bites back. Instead of walking with God, they, they flee from him. 
Verses 5 and 6, the ones we just looked at, were true of mankind before the fall. But, but now, sadly, they're not entirely true of all mankind. and Not in the same way they would have been had there been no fall. We have been spoiled by our own rebellion against God. And so one of the reasons it's surprising to read these passages is because we live in a world tainted by our own sin and failures. That is also why when the New Testament quotes Psalm chapter 8, which it does in a number of places, they understand that these references to mankind are primarily about one man. They're primarily about one man, a man who did not rebel against God. The only man who could claim to have done all that God required of him and always walked with God and always obeyed God. A man who temporarily gave up his crown of glory and honor to wear a crown of thorns. A man for whom eternity past was greater than all beings, angelic beings included, yet took on human form, thereby becoming a little lower than the angels for a time. One commentator, Derek Kidner, oh, he so wisely observed, Psalm 8 carries... Here's what he writes, carries implications which only the incarnation, death, and reign of Christ are big enough to satisfy. The author of Hebrews chapter 2 says it this way, For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. He writes, it has been testified somewhere, and the somewhere is Psalm chapter 8. It has been testified somewhere. What is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You've crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. He continues, now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not see everything in subjection to him, but we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus. Jesus is the one made a little lower than the angels for a time, now crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death. So that by the grace of God, he might taste death. For everyone. We should give our lives to declaring that God's name is majestic in all the earth because God sent his son as the perfect man to lay down his life in the place of imperfect men. God's name is majestic in all the earth, not mostly because he creates, but because he forgives and saves. He is both great and gracious. He is both mighty and merciful. If you wish to understand why your life matters to God, then you must look long and hard at the cross on which the Son of God died. For it was there 
that Jesus spared your life by substituting his own. It was there that the perfect man suffered the penalty that imperfect men deserve. It was there he saved our lives and proved beyond any doubt that we matter to him. All this he did so that we could go on saying and enjoying saying, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Over and over again, the New Testament says that Jesus is exalted because he was humbled. And when we look at his humility in the incarnation and his humiliation in the crucifixion, we can't help but lift our voices to exalt him. We are rebels. Don't plaster over that. Don't pretend like it's not true. Don't minimize that. We are rebels, but we are redeemed. So that we can say, O oh Lord, our Lord, how majestic is the name of Jesus in all the earth. This psalm was penned by a worshiper who is entranced with something besides himself. And in a world where we're obsessed with thinking about and improving ourselves, we need to remember, this is where Christians actually really need to be a counterculture. We need to remember that joy and stability and peace and a sense of purpose will never be found by searching deeper and deeper and deeper and deeper inside yourself. You, me, everybody, we got to get our attention on something outside of us, something outside of our circumstances. We need to be amazed by something greater than us. In a book called Seeing and Savoring Jesus Christ, one of our favorite pastors, authors, preachers, John Piper, writes the following. We are all starved for the glory of God, not self. We're starved for the glory of God, not self. No one goes, he says, no one goes to the Grand Canyon to increase self-esteem. Why do we go? Because there is greater healing for the soul in beholding splendor than there is in beholding self. Indeed, what could be more ludicrous in a vast and glorious universe like this than a human being on the speck called earth standing in front of a mirror trying to find significance in his own self-image? It won't work. We're starved for the glory of God. Are you starving? For the glory of God? Is your soul weak and emaciated? Are you depressed? Are you listless? Are you bored? Are you angry because things aren't going your way? Are you afraid of the future? Are you disappointed by the present? Are you stuck in the past? Do you feel that your life is meaningless? If you fit into any of those categories, those are all symptomatic. They're symptoms of a person starved for the glory of God. And healing for your soul is in beholding splendor, namely the splendor of God, not yourself, not in getting what you want, but in giving God what he deserves. That's what life is. It's not getting what you want. 
but giving God what he deserves. Look, there is a sky full of stars at night fashioned by the finger of God for us to behold. There are eight billion people on this planet who all reveal the majesty of God. There's a book filled with truth about the glory of this great and gracious God. There is a Savior who came from heaven to save us from hell. God is constantly showing us his glory so that we would be in awe, in awe of him. His glory is the greatest thing that exists and he's sharing it with you and with me. There's nothing better to see than him in all of his splendor. So today, give yourself a break from yourself, all right? Take your attention off of yourself. Take it off of the people who bother you. Turn off the news and ignore the headlines for a moment and think about the God who keeps galaxies spinning yet cares for you. Meditate on the reality that God loves humans like you and me more than any other creature that he has made bow your knee before Jesus who humbled himself to live and die for us that we might behold the glory of God in his face. And as you do, as you get your attention on the splendor of God, what will bubble up in your heart and come out of your mouth is this. Oh Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. I want to pray that that would be us. Lord, there is no shortage, no shortage of ways that you have revealed yourself to be a wonderful and glorious God, even in surprising ways. I pray, Lord, that for many of us here today, it would, it would surprise us that you care so much for us and that you have put us in such a privileged position in your world and, oh, that it would surprise us most of all that you would send your son. Pay the penalty for our rebellion. May all these things take root in our hearts so that we would gladly proclaim how majestic your name is in all the earth and we would experience the healing of soul that comes from beholding your splendor rather than ourselves. I pray this for my friends here in Jesus' name. Amen.